The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You know, the U.S. investment in renewables and clean energy is huge and, and growing, and that's really important. But you can't just grow that. You also have to reduce the oil and gas, right? <laughs> um, you don't want to keep growing both of them going forward. I think also for the U.S., you know, maybe I'm beating a dead horse here, but these finance questions I think are really important. And, and again, one thing we've been working on at the Center for Climate and Security is to make the case that investing in climate finance and whether it's finance for the energy transition or finance for adaptation is an invest a security investment for the U.S., right? You're buying down future risk in vulnerable places where climate hazards or the inability to transition to clean energy could lead to instability. And so making those investments, I think that's something the U.S. has to get its, its head around. I'm Heyman Hahn, Associate Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for December 15th, 2023. According to the resolution signed at the end of the 28th meeting of the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or COP28 for short, fossil fuels have finally been sentenced to a slow and painful death. This year's Global Climate Summit, held in the United Arab Emirates, ended with an overtime session that resulted with the nations agreeing to transition away from fossil fuels for the first time in COP history. But what does this really mean? And is the language as strong as it could have been? I talked to director of the Center for Climate Insecurity and Lawfare contributing editor, Aaron Sikorsky, about the final deal language, what else happened at COP28, and the geopolitical implications of the clean energy transition. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 15th. Fossil fuel flops at COP28. So Aaron, I know that you were at COP28 for a bit in Dubai. Can you paint a picture of the scene for us? Tell us a bit what it was like. Sure. I mean, whenever you have, you know, nearly 90,000 people gathering in one location, it's a bit chaotic. Uh, <laughs> but it was also really exciting to see people from all over the world coming together to talk about next steps in terms of tackling climate change. And frankly, I can't think of another international gathering, right, that really has literally people from from every country around the globe. So I was there because uh, peace and security issues were at the forefront of many discussions at COP in a way that they haven't been previously. So it was really exciting to see, you know, the U.S. Department of Defense have a large delegation there, um, some other militaries, and, and lots of conversations around the nexus of climate change and peace and climate change and security. Yeah. Why do you think that was this year? Was that a, something that the president wanted to do for this year's COP? 
Yeah, it's something that's been building over the past couple of years. Uh, there's been, uh, there was a lot of, uh, of a push in Egypt last year as well on this topic uh, to look at, you know, countries that are already in conflict, countries that are highly fragile. A very small amount of climate finance is going toward these countries. Yet when you layer climate hazards on top of conflict they're already experiencing or, or tensions within countries, it's, it's making these problems worse. And so there's been a concerted push by organizations and by countries, and it was definitely something the UAE took up. And there was actually a declaration. There was a day on relief, recovery, and peace for the first time. That was a theme on one of the days of COP. And a, a declaration was released on the topic that was endorsed by nearly 80 countries and, and 40 organizations, including my own, the Center for Climate and Security. So I think there's just kind of a, a there's been momentum over the past years. And frankly, unfortunately, some of that momentum is coming from the fact that we're actually seeing these impacts in conflict affected states or, or contributing to instability and conflict more and more frequently as we see, you know, more intense and more frequent climate hazards. Yeah. And, and surely they didn't go into too much granularity about the specific conflicts that are driving this or how deeply did we get into the issue exactly? Yeah, so the resolution or the the declaration itself does not name specific conflicts. It talks about the most vulnerable and fragile states, right? But it talks about them somewhat generally. Of course, in other events and conversations at COP, the war in Gaza was at the forefront of a lot of of discussions and protest actions within the blue zone there at COP, but there was also a uh, discussion around the war in Ukraine. Uh, and that was something that was happening at COP last year as well, where the Ukrainian government uh, held side events to highlight the emissions from the Russian invasion, the environmental degradation of the Russian invasion. So those two conflicts obviously got a lot of attention, but there are many more as well. There's civil conflict in Sudan. There's ongoing conflict and instability in Yemen and in uh, places like Somalia, right, that all get attention as well in this space. Yeah, I suppose it's a nice thing to have an annual date that we know is coming for moments where it, it happens to be helpful to have a forum like this to meet and talk about very current issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the fact that so many people are together in, in one spot, and like I said, you know that people from around the world are going to be there. It's an opportunity to to engage on, obviously, the main event, climate, but but other issues as well that, that frankly, are shaped by and connected to the climate crisis as well. Yeah. So on to the main, I think, headline from COP28, which I think is, and let me know if you agree, the fossil fuel deal language. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the final agreement says in terms of the fossil fuel transition and whether you think it's actually a big deal? Yeah, well, it's the first time in, in 28 years of these meetings that fossil <laughs> fuels have been mentioned in the final text. So in, in that sense, it is a big deal. And the language specifically says, quote, countries will transition away from fossil fuels which is as straightforward as that sounds, as you know, those of us who work on climate issues know that fossil fuels are the problem, and we've known that for decades, right? Um, the fact that it's 
in language agreed to by so many different countries is a big deal. But of course, it's not sufficient, right? It's an important step, but much more needs to be done. And frankly, from my perspective, you know, kind of no matter what the language in the document itself says, what matters is the action of the member states, right? And they're going to act not necessarily based on that language, but on what they think is in their national interests and what they feel pressure um, from other countries to do, right? So the document's important, and and I'm glad it's there. I'm glad it says that, but it's just one piece of of the larger puzzle. But I think, you know, as a somewhat cynical person, I was I was personally pleased to see that they at least got the language they did. You know, they don't talk about a phase out. They don't talk about a phase down which has been the demand from a lot of uh, countries in the global South who are feeling the impacts of climate change already, but it is progress from where we, where we were before the cop started. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, getting into the semantics a little bit, what's the, what was the big kind of deal about not doing phase down and then instead doing transition away? Are they not synonyms in a meaningful way? I <laughs> yeah, mean, I mean really? a, I'll admit I'm, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a, a climate negotiator. But I think I think the, the difference is I think transition away is seen as less strong than phased out or phased down. I think there are those in, you know, oil producing states who argue that uh, things like carbon capture, right, ways to continue to produce fossil fuels are, are things we need to, to keep exploring. There are other countries that haven't, you know, fully developed yet um, that are looking to the energy transition and are worried, frankly, about their own economic development and, and see things. I mean, there's some language in, in the stock take around uh, transition fuels, a reference to gas, natural Mm -hmm. gas, which obviously still produces carbon emissions and is very detrimental um, to to climate change. But that language did make it in there. My understanding is the U.S. wasn't very happy about that. But so there's a lot of different perspectives, right, and and challenges here. And I think, as you saw from some of the press coverage of where OPEC states were coming from and Saudi Arabia in particular, uh, that language around phase down or phase out was seen as as a bridge too too far. Right. Yeah, I do want to get to OPEC in a second. But I, I also thought it was unfortunate, though, that there was a kind of, I thought, a weakening from the COP27 language about the coal discussion. Mm. There was a rapidly phasing down unabated coal um, language that was an or- originally put in, in, in COP27, but now it just says something like limitations on permitting the efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal power. So in your opinion, is that a weakening? Was there like a step backwards that we were taking about coal in particular? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'll admit, you know, the 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 comparison there might be getting a little bit out of my area of expertise on on these negotiations. So I hesitate to to make a judgment call. I do think, I mean, you know, India in particular is very concerned about coal. And I think in the past year or two uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the changes and challenges to global energy markets from that. We've seen some countries, unfortunately, return to coal. But I know there were other discussions during the COP around agreements on coal and, and, and really 
pushing that as hard as possible. But in terms of the the difference between the two, um, I would I would leave that to the the negotiators to explain the difference there. Okay, gotcha. Um, so going back to the OPEC statements, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, can you tell us a bit more about the politics that went into getting this fossil fuel language at all? I, I mean, there was that letter that OPEC sent, and obviously this was being held at the UAE, and the COP president himself was or is a CEO of the UAE's state-owned oil company. H- how does all of this fit together to actually result in, for the first time, fossil fuel language? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a good question. And obviously, there were those that that pushed very, uh, or were very concerned about um, the UAE role in COP, and in particular, Al Jaber's position running the oil company, right, of the country, and the revealing right before COP that he was planning to do deals uh, with folks who were in town on the side on on oil and gas. And clearly, all of that is is highly concerning. But I also think, right, if you only are negotiating amongst the countries and people that only that already agree with one another and that are already taking steps uh, uh, in the right direction on climate, then you're not actually going to solve the problem, right? <laughs> because you need those countries that are producing the oil and gas, right, to, to be part of the solution um, if we're actually going to tackle this challenge. We could choose to exclude them, but then... Um, they can continue doing what they're doing, and there's no incentive, right? So I do think it's important to have these have the COP process include all parties at some level. That doesn't mean that those parties that are the the producers of oil and gas should be the ones dictating the terms. But I think you get more legitimacy, frankly, by having a UAE-led COP that talks about fossil fuels in the document than if you'd had a COP led by you know, climate champions that that were excluding other countries. I think, frankly, we're at, we're at a point now where the the evidence is so strong that the fossil fuels are a problem, and also from a national interest point of view, clean energy technologies, renewable energy technologies, are cost competitive in many places. They're the the economic future in in a lot of places, and countries realize that they can't be left behind in that also. So I think there is long-term interest of countries to recognizing, you know, not only the climate benefits, but also the economic and the political benefits of that transition. And so it is an easier pill to swallow now to talk about fossil fuels. And I just think it really would have delegitimized the entire COP process had that not been a part of, of the document. And I think the UAE leadership knew that. I think also the fact that the U- United States and China, right, China being the number one emitter currently, the U.S. being number two, the fact that the two those two countries demonstrated prior to the COP through the Sunnylands declaration and announcement their commitment on these issues. And my understanding is John Kerry and his Chinese counterpart, you know, were in marathon sessions in the days leading up to the final announcement. And that that demonstrated leadership by those two parties really helped shape uh, the conversation as well. You know, we have a lot of debate here in the U.S. right now about cooperation or competition with China, and those in the climate community have been, really been pushing that that cooperation is is absolutely critical. And I think this is an example of why that cooperation is so critical, right? It's not cooperation necessarily on the technical aspects of decarbonizing together. I mean, both countries could do that 
independently if they wanted. But it's the signal that that cooperation sends to the rest of the world and kind of sets the groundwork for further action. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, do you think that that played a role specifically to in the U.S.'s kind of being adamant about this fossil fuel language being included in the final COP28 draft? Yeah, I think I think the the partnership with China was a part of that. I think it's also John Kerry's leadership, right? This is going to be the last year, likely, of, of his position with the Biden administration. We're heading into an election in the U.S., right? This was kind of the opportunity to push that forward. And and I think the U.S. genuinely believes it. I mean, we've seen it with the Inflation Reduction Act and the investments we're making here that continued reliance on fossil fuels is, it's not just a problem, but it's a national security risk, right, for, for the United States. And so I think clearly, you know, the cooperation with China was a piece of it, but I also think it's just where the U.S. is on on this issue and where they think the global community needs to be on it as well. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do you think that the vagueness of the final language, though, is going to create loopholes for certain nations to kind of get out of the the phase out. The, the language is, I think, in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, um, will they transition away from fossil fuels? So given the, the vagueness of that, what kind of issues do you potentially foresee in, in terms of enforcing this? Sure. I mean, Again, as I, as I said earlier, I think the language in these documents, given the nature of it, given the number of countries that you need to get to agree to it, it it's always going to be kind of vague, right? It's just the nature of the beast and the nat- nature of multilateral negotiations and, and engagement. But it sets that North Star, right? And it sets goals that, that folks should be moving toward. But the work, you know, continues and within countries, you know, civil society and advocates within governments are going to have to push countries to to move more quickly through the transition. As I said earlier, I think the economic incentives are there increasingly, especially in the developed world. I think the investments we're making here in the U.S., like I said, through the Inflation Reduction Act. But, you know, one thing we haven't talked about yet, and I think is really important to all this, this globally, is the question of climate finance as well you know, helping countries 
particularly in the global south and in the developing world, I mean, that was the grand bargain of the Paris Agreement, right? Is that everyone would commit to curbing emissions, but that the global north and those most responsible for emitting over time would provide financing to those to help them move through that transition. And that, I think, is the key to unlocking real progress going forward is is to really invest in things across a variety of of platforms, right? There's the Green Climate Fund, which is one pathway, um, but there are lots of different bilateral pathways. There's a myriad of public-private partnership pathways that were announced at, at COP, right? All these new different financing facilities. There's a lot of talk at the World Bank and the IMF. And I think of the spring meetings of the World Bank here in Washington, you'll see continued discussion about how those institutions can play a, a better role in, in the finance piece, because I think that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of making sure that that all countries, and especially some of the, you know, the, the bigger economies in the global south, I'm thinking places like India, countries like Indonesia, Nigeria, South Africa, right, that they can access funds and support to make the transition economically viable for them. Do you expect to see the climate financing patterns align more generally with existing partnerships and alliances? Or do you think it's powerful enough as as a global movement to kind of transcend traditional security partnerships? Yeah, I think it's still, I mean, I think the bulk of the money, you know, from from places like the United States or Europe is going to, it's going to go to countries where they have existing relationships, right, where they see opportunities. So I don't, I don't think it's, it's rooted necessarily in traditional security partnerships or security alliances. But I think it is going to go to places where there is trust and there is some kind of relationship, right? I know the United States has been pushing on China more to provide more uh, climate finance globally. You know, in the Paris Agreement, China is uh, characterized as a developing nation. Uh, and so it does not bear technical responsibility <laughs> in, in that agreement for, for providing finance. But there's been more of, more of a push for that. You know, when, when Janet Yellen went to China earlier this year, she raised that publicly about China's need to contribute more uh, climate finance. And so I think that will will continue to be a push. But but the I mean, the bottom line is right now there isn't enough money for climate finance generally. We're woefully behind on our commitments. The U.S. keeps making commitments and then not completely following through, uh, thanks to Congress, unfortunately. And not only is money needed for financing, you know, the transition to clean energy, but also now, you know, the other big thing that was new at this COP, at COP28 was the agreement on the loss and damage fund. Um, there was a big discussion around adaptation funding, right? So not only, you know, moving to clean energy, but also managing the existing risks that climate, climate is posing. And again, from where I sit in the national security community, Frankly, in the near term, it's those investments in adaptation and loss and damage that matter uh, the most for for near term managing near term security risks from climate. Right. 
I did want to get into loss and damage. So thanks for bringing that up. And of course, that's separate from the climate finance question. It's a separate pool of funds that is specifically for reparations based on how much countries have been affected by other countries' emissions. Can you tell us a bit more about what was agreed to during this COP on it? Because, of course, last year they agreed to make the fund, but this year I think more clear language came about as to how the funds would be dispersed. Exactly. Exactly. So, yep, last year they agreed to make the fund, and then they spent a year negotiating language <laughs> about how to create the fund. And and on the very first day of COP, actually, they agreed to that language, which includes the fund being initially stood up through the World Bank, which was something that the U.S. pushed for uh, pretty heavily, and some other countries were in the developing world in the Global South were, were concerned about, but eventually agreed to. And initial payments into the fund were announced from, from countries, I believe $100 million from the UAE, another $100 million from Germany, where the big, the big dollar amounts, the US pledged $17.5 million, <laughs> uh, very small. But frankly, I mean, again, you know, countries are constrained by their own domestic politics. And the idea of a loss and damage fund, of a reparations fund internationally, is not politically popular in the United States, you know, on either side of the aisle, frankly. And, you know, earlier this year in congressional testimony, John Kerry was basically made to say by, by Republican questioning that the U.S. will never pay reparations, right, for, for climate change. So um, the fact that that we were able to agree to the fund at all, the creation and 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 put some money forward, I think is a good is a good step. Um, I think it's going to be tough sledding, to be frank with you, to to get that fund to the level of money that it needs, given the other competing demands. I mean, I was just reading yesterday that the UN, you know, not climate necessarily related, but the UN humanitarian funding call for like urgent emergency humanitarian action around the globe is falling well short of what is needed because countries just aren't ponying up the money. So so there's not enough <laughs> there's not enough money in in many different funds for many different things around the world and so in some of this I worry a little bit that we're starting to rob Peter to pay Paul to you know taking money from one place and putting it somewhere else but but we'll see where loss and damage goes. I think it's I've been pleasantly again as as a you know someone who worked in the intelligence community for a long time and and generally is pretty cynical about about countries coming together and and agreeing on things. It was it was good to see that come together on the first first day of the COP. But I don't expect that it's going to be flush with funds anytime soon. Yeah. What's the process for countries to be able to access the fund through the World Bank? Do we know that? It's a good question and and still not clear completely. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's the other interesting piece of this. I mean, there's, in, and this was part of what held up the IPCC report this past year, the, the final publication of the IPCC report was, how do we define the most vulnerable countries? Right. And there was jockeying, frankly, amongst the global south to be listed as the most vulnerable because that can help unlock additional funds. So I think sorting that piece out of who and how they can access it is is going to be important. I mean, that was one of the main sticking points 
at the last COP for the United States that they didn't want China to be able to access the loss and damage fund. And my understanding is that basically there's a gentleman's agreement that that China will not be able to, but it's not actually legally prohibited from given its status as a developing country in you know the UNFCCC framework. So yeah, lots to be lots to be sorted out there still, I think. Well, so I mean, one of the reasons, obviously, that the countries were concerned about the World Bank being at the helm of the loss and damage fund was is because the the presidents of the World Bank are appointed by the U.S. Do you think that that's going to play a role in the disbursement of funds and the kind of politics that goes into loss and damage? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll we'll just have to see. I think that you know there will be. I, I think. A, as the fund is set up, I think a lot of these political sensitivities will be taken into account. Obviously, the World Bank, under its new leadership, is attempting to be much more sensitive to these these climate concerns and, and kind of has them at the forefront. So I guess watch this space is what I will say <laughs> going forward. Fair enough. So, of course, in, in all of this, an underlying meta question is how to think about the geopolitics that are going to be affected by the clean energy transition. And this is something that you recently wrote about with your co-author for Lawfare. Can you give us a sense of what the geopolitics look like from your standpoint after COP28, whether things are materially different for you in, in, in your calculus and what we should be looking out for? Sure. I mean, like I said, I think the 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 big question of of the US and China, you know, cooperation on climate, I think that was we're in a a good place right now comparatively to where we were say 6 months ago, right? And I think that's a a good sign, but I think a lot of that hinges on um the relationship between John Kerry and his counterpart. Um and we know that both of them are probably going to be out of the picture here going forward in in future years. So I think that uh, will be a challenge. And obviously, there are other things that can upset that apple cart (laughs) at any moment, right, between those two countries. I think, you know, as as my colleague Matt Ince and I wrote about for Lawfare, I think that the two things going forward to think about is as we move through the fossil fuel, you know, transition or phase out or whatever, whatever we want to use, there are some fossil fuel producers who will be winners in that, right? They'll be the last ones standing <laughs> because of how they um, the, the, that it's low cost for them to extract that oil from their land, and and they're going to be the ones that 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 shut down the latest, and that gives them more power potentially, right? Whereas countries that it's very expensive or they haven't fully developed their their oil and gas capacities yet, they're going to lose power. Um, similarly, the the inputs you need for clean energy, renewable energy, critical minerals, right, that are needed for making batteries or for solar panels, you know, countries that not only have access to those minerals within their their own land, or countries that have the ability to exploit that and then process those minerals, largely China, right, that's going to convey some geopolitical advantages potentially as well. Um, and and competition over access to those is going to shift shift the landscape. Um, I think this continued nexus of conflict in in Ukraine and Russia's stranglehold 
on on oil and gas to Europe and and kind of how that shapes those countries' decision making around uh, energy and energy sources will be a geopolitical issue to watch. And I do think this divide between the North and South over finance, I think might, you know, things might feel better today than they did pre-COP, given all the discussions there, but still, you know, the money is still very low. Um, The, you know, the global goal on adaptation negotiations didn't get very far at, at this COP. And so I think that tension uh, is going to grow. And as I think it's connected to the competition with China for the U.S., right, because the countries we want on side or the U.S. wants on side in that that competition, you know, a lot of those countries, especially in the Indo-Pacific, their number one threat is climate change. And when you talk to leaders from those countries, that's what they say. And so they want support from the U.S. to address climate risks. And if they don't get it, um, it's going to make it a lot harder for them to be our partner in in that competition with China. So I think we might be in in a bit of a post cop <laughs> positive, you know, kumbaya moment in in terms of the geopolitics here for a little bit, but I don't think that's going to to last particularly long and obviously we have a big election coming up in the US here which could could throw this all out of whack as well. Are there any obvious policy implications for the U.S. in particular coming out of COP28 that you don't think we're moving on quickly enough or that we should be moving on more quickly? Well, I mean, I think you do have to reconcile the fact that the U.S. is investing still in in new oil and gas production, right? And so I think this, there have been some critiques about hypocrisy there, and those, I think, will grow louder if we continue down that path. So I think that that policy piece is is challenging. I mean, I think, you know, the U.S. investment in renewables and clean energy is huge and and growing, and that's really important. But you can't just grow that. You also have to reduce the oil and gas, right? <laughs> um, you don't want to keep growing both of them going forward. I think also for the U.S., you know, maybe I'm beating a dead horse here, but these finance questions, I think, are really important. And And again, one thing we've been working on at the Center for Climate and Security is to make the case that investing in climate finance and whether it's finance for the energy transition or finance for adaptation is an invest a security investment for the US right you're buying down future risk in vulnerable places where climate hazards or the inability to transition to clean energy could lead to instability and so making those investments i think that's something the US has to get its its head around and i you know i'm agnostic as to what how we do that, right? Is it all bilateral? Fine. Is it through multilateral funds like the Green Climate Fund? Fine. Is it through public-private partnerships, you know, which were, again, announced at COP through the PREPARE program, which is a program that USAID and the White House and the State Department have all been working on to invest in, in adaptation? You know, that finance can come a lot of different ways, but I think the U.S. needs to figure that out not only, again, for it standing on the world stage and, and to show that it's it's a, a legitimate partner, but also to manage future security. Great. Well, thanks so much. I hope we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. 
You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.